focus less on all the skills you feel like you need to accumulate and focus more on like, what are those areas? What are those problem areas that you're going to be energized by day in and day out? And it won't matter if you know something or you don't know something because you're just you're willing to figure it out. That's Ken Babcock, CEO of Tango. Ken retraces his career journey on this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Growing up in Buffalo, embracing leadership roles in high school and college set the foundation for a career that took Ken to Deloitte Consulting, Uber, Atomic, and ultimately Harvard Business School. There, he met his co-founders and started Tango, a Chrome extension that takes the pain out of documenting processes by automatically generating how-to guides while you work. Many leadership lessons are packed in for this episode. I'm Peter Barron, Brendan Schneider and I learned a lot, and we know you will too, so let's get started. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. And welcome to the Leadership Backstory. So, Brendan, you know, here we are on screen with Ken Babcock, the CEO of Tango. We're super excited to talk to him about his journey. Um, you know, there's we were talking a little bit before we got going, and it, it sounds like we're going to start pretty early in the journey. So I'm, I love like digging into like the high school years, how that forms it, you know, who you are. So, Ken, welcome to the Leadership Backstory. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, Ken, you know, look. Tell us first off. Tell us a little bit about Tango, because I think I want to set up where you are now before we we before we start on that journey. So, you know, in just a little bit, could you explain what the the service that Tango provides? Yep. So Tango is a Chrome extension. allows you to create uh, beautiful step-by-step how-to guides complete with URLs, screenshots, automated descriptions, um, all in the flow of work. Meaning you just go through your process. We sit in the background. We create that based on what you're doing. Uh, and then that's easily shareable to anyone on your team. So we're trying to lower that barrier to creating documentation to accelerate mm-hmm. knowledge transfer yeah. within organizations. You know, that's something that's hot, you know, big on my mind right now, all those standard operating procedures. So I'm excited to, <laughs> to like get into that part of it and how your journey led you there. But, you know, you're from, you're from the Buffalo area, which, you know, if anybody's wondering, has like the best sandwich in the world, the beef on like it's <laughs> by far the best thing you'll ever have in your life. Um, yeah. Talk to us about that. Like, what was that like growing up in Buffalo and how did that set you on a journey that, that really has leadership at its core? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, but growing up in Buffalo, it's really a, a story of resilience. You know, you've got horrible snowstorms, you know, terrible Bills teams up until, you know, maybe five years ago. And, uh, you yeah. know, just heartbreak with the Buffalo Sabres. So, uh, yeah, resilience, I think, is a common theme. Um, but no, I, I, so yeah, I grew up outside of Buffalo, um, small farming community. You know, a lot of my friends growing up, they had, they had dairy farms or, soybean farms or uh we had we actually our house we weren't farmers ourselves but we had alternating soybean and corn sort of surrounding our house so a lot of like small town values um and you know it was kind of this like idyllic sort of friday night lights-esque town and you know i played sports growing up um and i think you know a lot of my leadership backstory i always point to those teams that i was on uh because i sort of fell into these captain roles really early and had to figure out, you know, how do you lead your peers? How do you lead people that are, you know, maybe older than you or, or, you know, maybe you're the best player on the team and, and maybe you're not, but you're the captain. So, um, sports paved the way for a lot of that. And, you know, our teams, 
football, we were like very competitive. We'd always end up being like ranked in the state, but like our basketball team, I mean, talk about turmoil. We were like high expectations, like roller coaster every season. Um, and you know, working through that, I think just pushed me in the direction of, of leadership. Did you carry that through into college? Yeah, I did. I mean, not the sports stuff so much, um, but leadership opportunities. I mean, I was, you know, very active on campus. You know, I was definitely one of the people that didn't maybe spend as much time on the, on the classes, but spent a lot of time with like extracurricular activities. Um, you know, I think I also went to Cornell, which was, which is in upstate New York, close, relatively close to where I grew up. Um, but I went there and, you know, for me, it was like a very high stakes affair. And what I mean by that is I could have gone to like an in-state school, um, paid a lot less. Uh, and instead I was like, all right, I'm ready to take on, you know, 50 K in loans per year to go to Cornell because I thought that that would, you know, that would achieve sort of a better outcome for me. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to achieve not just in the classroom but like everywhere else because I'm like okay well that's gonna get me a job and that job's gonna be relatively high paying and I'll be able to come out of college and be able to handle that so um maybe different motivators but I just I continued that leadership journey and continued to learn more about you know how do I how what is my leadership style which I think is something that gets lost a lot um when you talk about leadership you know I, I don't think there's any one perfect style. Right. And so all this journey has been a lot of like exploring what works for me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming that's like layered over the years, right? Like you, you, what you, how you led in high school versus college versus today. I'm, I'm wondering like how, what that contrast looks like. Stark. Yeah. Let's see. I, I mean, you know, in, in high school and college, there's a lot of, you know, how do you, you know, how do you go from kind of being a peer to someone that people can look up to? Um, and so it was a lot of like role modeling certain behaviors, right? I mean, I think in sports, it's, it's classic, right? You're the person that goes through conditioning the hardest, or you're the person that takes like thrift stretches the most seriously. And, and so naturally you're the leader. So it's a lot of like role modeling that behavior. I found that relatively true in, in college as well. Like, you know, how do you role model that behavior? But also I think that's where it expanded to being, you know, how do you complement that with an emotional intelligence that allows you to connect with people? Um, so many people are going through so many different things, right? I think, I think Cornell kind of exposed that a little bit more to me and, and, you know, now leading, leading Tango and leading a company and you know, a lot of people that are marching towards similar objectives and goals. It's, it's a lot of, how do I enable an environment where we're able to have hard conversations where we're able to be honest about what we think, how to, you know, it allows us to change direction on a dime if we need to, um, or, right. you know, allows us to kind of double down on investment areas and bit what's not working. So very, very different. And, and like you said, it's all, it's all kind of layered on top of each other. Yeah. Were, were you seeking out those opportunities, Ken, or as a leader, or did, did, did they come to you based on how you were behaving and acting? It was a little bit of both. I think, I think it, yeah, yeah, I think it would be fairly, 
um, naive to say that it was one or the other in, in my mind, because there was definitely that yeah. push of, I need to, I need to set myself up for success because I'm taking this big risk and going to big financial risk and going to Cornell. So I was seeking a lot of that. I was seeking sort of that achievement, accomplishment, resume building. Um, but as I got more into it, I think it was more like, oh, this feels, this feels very natural for me. Um, you know, I think, I think leading teams, rallying people around common goals, figuring out, you know, what are the strengths, the weaknesses and like, you know, how to, how to sort of the whole exceed the sum of the parts. Those were the types of problems that I liked thinking about. Um, and you know, that is, so that it was sort of a, a combination of the two, if you will. So Ken, we, you went through college, like, it's really fascinating. Like, I, I know when I was in high school and college, like, I, I didn't really have this concept of leadership, but it sounds like it's really been ingrained with you at a young age. When you left and you took your first job, it looked like you went to Deloitte. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. So what was that transition like? I mean, and what were you doing there? And how did that add yet another layer to your leadership philosophy? Yeah, that was a challenging experience for me, candidly. Um, I think it was probably the first experience that I had where I wasn't, I wasn't ready to be the poster boy for what I was doing. Uh, everything before that, I, I felt like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm doing this. I'm gonna go for the leadership opportunity. I'm gonna be like the head of the of the group or the organization. And that was one where I quickly realized this isn't, this isn't really for me. I, I think I struggled with the fact that. I didn't see anyone in my mind that I wanted to be long-term, um, you know, so the role model aspect, it's always been important to me. The mentorship aspect has always been important to me. And I just, I didn't see or feel that at Deloitte. And I also felt like a lot of what we were doing from a work standpoint and granted, you know, I had limited data points. I was only there for a year or so. I know, I know <laughs> everyone can have different experiences, but the work that we were doing felt very um, performative. It didn't feel like what we were doing was materially going to change the course of this fortune 500 company. And, and I also realized that that's not necessarily a realistic expectation, but we were delivering a lot of like strategic recommendations and then, and then going away and let's, you know, let's see what they implement. In fact, we won't even check in to see if they implement it. We just, we sold the work. We did the project, we checked the box. Um, and so that was, that was something for me where I, you know, I had this cognitive dissonance of like, it's a team environment. We're, we're working in a team. We're like traveling to the client site every single week. Um, it has all the bones of like something that I would really enjoy, but the fact that the work wasn't tied to like an outcome and there wasn't real ownership, I started to question a lot of like, do I really want to be here? <laughs> and so. I only stayed there for, for about a year. Um, I had interned there as well when I, when I was in college, but the internship experience is like, you know, it's like running through a high five tunnel. It's not, it's not, it's not what the actual <laughs> job is like. So, uh, that one year was enough for me. How did you, at what point did you realize that that wasn't the right fit? I mean, was that something you, you observed quickly or did, did it take a little bit of time to sort through that? Cause I, I'm just thinking about it. Like you're out of college you're probably super psyched to be in the workforce. Like it's a whole new part uh -huh. of your life, but yet you were able to 
discern pretty quickly that that wasn't the uh-huh. right fit. Yeah, I th- I, it felt pretty quick. I mean, it was probably my first project, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, I was right out of school. I was living in New York. All my best friends were living in New York. Um, we were, you know, we were having a ton of fun, but something about something about that role just didn't didn't really click for me. Um, and you know, I've always been someone who's been, you know, extremely motivated. You know, very much trying to to put my best foot forward and do my best work. And I think it was just a a situation where I just I didn't feel that in that foreign. Mm-hmm. Or that absence of that feeling was 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 almost like concerning to me. It's like, oh gosh, this isn't good. I need to like I need to figure things out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I call it self awareness. Call it just like shock. I mean, whatever you want to call it. That's that's when I felt pretty early on. Before we move to where you you ended up, you mentioned a word that I know is important to you because you've written a lot about it: mentorship or being okay. a mentor. Is that something that's always been in? Like, were you looking for mentors in high school and college? Were you a mentor? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I've I've done a lot of mentorship, um, whether it's through organizations like Europe, which is an amazing, amazing organization. Uh, and then, you know, in college, I was a I was a teaching assistant for like three different courses. Um, you know, I was president of a, of a business fraternity that was all focused on mentorship and like helping people secure internships, full-time jobs. Um, so I did a lot of that, but I think it was largely because, you know, it was more of this like pay it forward mindset. Um, you know, for me and where I grew up and I, and I loved my childhood and I loved where I grew up, but the odds were not necessarily in your favor. Like, pretty rare to have, you know, people go to Cornell to people, people go to like work in New York city. I mean, I mean, just things like that felt so foreign. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just feel lucky that I had a lot of people to help me along the way to get to that point. Um, and emphasize like the right things at the right moments in time. Uh, so, you know, I've always, I've always viewed it as like a way of giving back. Um, and just knowing that like, you know, if you, if you, find the right person at the right time, give them the right opportunity. Things can, it can materially change their trajectory. So it means a lot to me. I mean, it, it influences a lot of like what we're building in Tango too, because you know, there's nothing worse than feeling stuck in the workplace and not been feeling like I don't know something. I don't know who to go to. I don't feel confident going to that person, but you know, making, making more of that knowledge accessible is, um, a lot of the underlying motivator that, you know, myself and my two co-founders, Brian and Dan, that we, we all felt. Yeah. So you made the decision to leave Deloitte and then went over to Uber in a product role. Like how, what, what drew you to product? Cause that, you know, that's a, that's a very, it's a different mindset than consulting, I imagine. And, you know, seeing where you are now, you know, clearly it was like a, a big, big, big part of your, of your, of your story, but like, what drew you to, to product? What, what, what excited you there? Yeah. So I should, I should clarify product was eventually where I ended up at Uber. But, um, when I first started out, I actually joined a team, um, that was focused on our launch operations. So the idea was, you know, Hey, we're launching all these cities. I think by the time we joined or I joined, we were at like 150 cities. 
But the objective of this team was let's figure out, and it was a new team, let's figure out what we've learned from those 150 because we have big, big plans to keep launching, right? And so Uber would eventually get to like 700 markets. And so it was, how do we take those learnings from the first 150 and the learnings from each incremental launch that we would do and apply those to the next one? So, you know, if you've ever heard people talk about like the Uber playbook, we were the Uber playbook team. We would literally hand it off to a city team and say, this is how you, this is how you run your market. And these are validated. These are tested. These are quantifiable. Um, so it was a pretty special group because we touched all of those on the ground markets, um, in a way that, you know, honestly was, was kind of like a best in class education around documentation. I mean, it was really, I was just going like, to say yeah. like, what yeah. would you, how much easier it would have been if you had tango then? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It would have been a lot right. easier. Um, right. And what I loved about it, and which which is what also informed a lot of our thinking around Tango, is that it was constantly changing. Like what worked one month wouldn't work the next, or um, you know, our interpretation of like, oh, this is how this city will perform would be completely turned upside down by some regulatory environment or, you know, some rider behavior that we hadn't experienced. And so that documentation needed to continue to adapt, you know, so we couldn't use, Hey, this is what we learned when we launched Paris in 2012. We couldn't use that in 2015, right? We had to tell people, Hey, that was a success story back then, but we've got a new view of the world. Um, and that's, I think that's so true for, for so many high growth organizations is, your SOPs, your your perspective on how you run your business that needs to change. I mean, if you're growing, it's changing. So um, that was another thing too that we realized when, when we were building Tango, the highest growth organizations not only need to create documentation, but they need to be able to rapidly change and improve that documentation too. So the the, the barrier being high has has you know sort of like multiplicative effects. So you were at Uber for, for four years, like what, you know, and we keep talking about layering your leadership style. What were some of the, the key learnings there? What'd you extract? Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, I, I call it a lot of, uh, do's and don'ts I'd say from my time at <laughs> my time at Uber. Um, you know, I, I think what was powerful about Uber, there was sort of this intangible leadership aspect, you know, very entrepreneurial culture. If you saw a problem that was big enough or an opportunity that was big enough, you could, you could go after it. Like as long as you made the right business case, you could rally a group of people. They didn't have to be your direct reports. They didn't have, even have to be on your team. But like, if you said, Hey, fraud, you know, this type of fraud is huge. We need to like figure out how to squash that. Um, you, you sort of assemble a tiger team and go after it. And so that like informal leadership was really powerful. Um, but then there was also, you know, sort of the formal leadership role. So I became a, a people manager when I was, when I was 24 there it was, it was probably my second year at Uber. Um, and that was really, that was really an awakening <laughs> because all of a sudden I had inherited a team of seven that was not mine before their manager had left the company. Um, you know, they had some baggage associated with that. They were also looking at me who before was a peer to all of them. We all started around the same time. We were all at the same level. 
we were doing similar work just in different areas. Um, and you know, I had been sort of thrust into that leadership role and now they were all reporting to me. And so there was a lot of, uh, you know, hesitation on those, those seven direct reports. I mean, I had to move probably two people to other teams cause they just, they were like, this was my path and now you're in that role. Um, and that was really challenging. Did you have a mentor there? Yeah, I had a few. I mean, I had a few, um, you know, I think mentors can live within your organization, outside your organization, preferably outside, honestly, because then you can, you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of a free spaced event. But, um, no, I had a, I had a manager, um, who continued to be my manager through that promotion. And, um, you know, our one-on-ones were largely me being like, I've got all these problems. <laughs> How would you address these problems? And, um, you know, he was great about that. I mean, he was, he was kind of the person that showed me, here's how you run one-on-ones, which sounds, you know, it sounds intuitive. I mean, when most people think like, oh, one-on-one, like it's just two people like talking about work, like how hard can that be? But like, as a manager, there's a way you approach those. Right. So he taught me a lot about that. Um, he taught me a lot about like building trusts and how you need to allocate your time as a manager. Like, where do you invest in people? Where do you uh, you know, try to sort of rescue lower performers. How do you help people kind of manage their career, you know, outside of you, even if they want to go like say outside of your team, there was just a ton of stuff where I was like, I need your help. <laughs> and so I'm going to continue to bring these to you every single week. And, uh, you know, we did that for another two years. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I still catch up with him. And uh, I don't come with him with nearly as many problems because he doesn't have the context <laughs> yeah. anymore, but, uh, you know, he's still that outlet. You said something about having a mentor outside of the organization that, that really, I could I, I completely agree. You know, I, we were, Brendan and I were talking to somebody not long ago about this concept of a personal board of directors, like people to call you on your BS, people to encourage you when you're down, like just people to like, just be real yeah. with you. Is that, yeah. and I know I've, I've got it right. And I, I don't know what I, I don't know where it would be without it, frankly. Um, do you, ha- do you have something like that? Is that, that a concept that you've thought about? Oh yeah. 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 I have, um, I mean, right now I have a, I have an executive coach, uh, and, and she's, she's amazing. And it's exactly that reason because, you know, any, any, even if in our, and me and my co-founders, we have an amazing relationship, you know, I think largely because we started as friends in business school and then we, then we decided to build Tango together. But even with that, even if those bonds are strong, like you need, you need somebody from the outside just to, just to, just to gut check you. Right. I mean, there's so many yeah. blind spots and biases when you are the ones building the company. Uh, and, and, you know, you've also got this confirmation bias of like, all right, we've had some success doing this. So like, this must be right, but this must be working. Um, and just having an outside perspective to be like, no, 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 that's not why you're successful. You're successful in spite of that. <laughs> I think that's really powerful. So, yeah. um, I've, I value that. I value that relationship at the top. Yeah. Do you encourage your, uh, employees to do similar sorts of things, maybe not from an executive coaching standpoint, but, but, but just like, Hey, like it's really important to have a network and to build that trusted group to keep you gut checked. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was working with our head of marketing and just being like, Hey, here, here are a bunch of people in my Rolodex that I think are great in the marketing world. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to facilitate some intros for you. And it's not that, you know, I value their opinion more than yours or like, I want you to soak up all of their knowledge. It's just more like, here are people that have experienced the things that you've probably experienced or you're going to experience. Um, and that's just a group that can, can support you. And, you know, even if it's just like once a month or once a quarter. Yeah. I want to talk more about like the culture that you're creating at Tango because I mean, you're clearly a thoughtful person and giving a lot of, a lot of attention to like, how do you build a sustainable place where people feel like they belong? And I want, I want to get to that. But before you had some additional stops along the way, one of which was like, you're, you're a, you are a, uh, a, like a, an executive in residence at an organization. Like, what is what was that? Like, I'm super curious about that. I saw that. I'm like, oh, I got to ask <laughs> yeah, about what, sure. what happened then. Yeah, Peter, I'm still I'm still trying to answer that question. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no. So I, you know, when I left Uber, you know, it was like four years and change. You know, I'd fully vested. I was thinking about you know next next opportunities. I was, I just, I saw a lot of my colleagues going off and like, okay, I'll just go to the next tech company or, and I, and, and that to me just didn't feel like the right next move. So I, you know, I always said to myself, okay, you only leave Uber once, what's it going to be for? And this was, this was the opportunity that I felt would get me closer to an entrepreneurial path. I think my view of entrepreneurship was, um, you know, sort of naive in that I thought, okay, to be an entrepreneur, I need to accumulate all of these skills because I'm going to need to do all the things. So I need to yeah. accumulate all the skills. And so my journey was always, all right, how do I go do and learn some stuff in product now? How do I go become a data scientist and go do that? Um, and this I viewed as a way for me to kind of be like a founder with trading wheels. Um, Man. And, you know, get my feet wet in areas that I hadn't really been exposed to yet what i didn't realize is that i wasn't steering the bike it, there might have been training wheels i might have been on it but i think it was a tandem bike and i was in the back seat just like you know yeah. with my my feet on the on the handlebars or something but um no it was you know i mean i think it it helped me understand a lot of the dynamics a lot of the you know the challenges that that come with entrepreneurship i think the biggest thing for me was that you know, I was brought in and they already had kind of a preconceived notion of what they wanted to build at the incubator. They were just looking for the right founder. And, and you were a founder in residence. That was your, yeah. that was your, that was your official title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my title. And I think they've since like changed that, that title around for the, this type of role, but effectively they, they had hired me to work on an idea that they felt really strongly about. And the more that I explored it, the less strongly I felt about it. And I realized that there wasn't really, um, there wasn't really the, the trust there for me to say, Hey, I don't think this is a great idea. I think we should go pivot and do something else. Um, they were pretty committed to the idea. And so the more that that became clear, the more that I realized, okay, you know what, if I'm going to sign up for something for five, six, seven, eight years, however long it takes to, to, to found and build a successful company. I have to like believe it 
in my bones that this is this right. is what the world needs. Uh, I need to believe it so deeply because, you know, every single day you're going to wake up and you're going to think about, okay, what do I need to do today? And it's going to be a lot of stuff. Not all of it's going to be yeah. fun. And there needs to be yeah. something in there where you say, this is why I do this. And so I feel right. like I have that with Tango, which is super powerful. I feel like, you know, and that's probably the number one thing that we, that we look for in hiring too. Like, this is going to be hard. You know, there are going to be things that you do in a given day that you don't want to do, but what's going to be that underlying drum beat that's going to get you through it. So I didn't feel that at Atomic, which, um, was unfortunate because it, you know, I had super high hopes and it was right around that time where I got into Harvard business school, I decided, okay, you know what, that's going to be an opportunity for me to take a step back, think about what it is that I really care about, um, mm -hmm. and hopefully meet some co-founders. When you, when you said that, you know, you felt like you needed to be a product person, a data scientist, like you needed to acquire all this, these skills and knowledges to be a successful founder. Do you, do you still think that's the case? No. I think curiosity is the is yeah. the number one determinant of whether you're going to be a successful founder. Curiosity and uh, self awareness. <clears throat> curiosity in the sense that, like, if there is something that you haven't encountered, but you want to figure it out, you know, you you will go to your network. You will go to all the resources that are available to figure out a given problem. That's the curiosity that I think you need, and then the self awareness piece is really just knowing what are the areas where you can be really impactful, really successful, and where, where are the areas where you can't, uh, where are the areas where you have blind spots? Because, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that that's often a challenge for people that are put in this role because you're the, you're the backstop for so many things. Like if you don't have a finance person, you're the backstop for finance. But if you, if you can admit, Hey, you know what, this is not, my, this is not my wheelhouse. I need to go I need to go figure this out in a way that sets the company up for success. I think that's what, that's what makes a successful founder. It's not, Hey, I spent six months here, six months there, six months there. I'm going to put that all together and it's all on me. That's the other thing. It's not all on you. So like thinking about how do you, how do you leverage your network? How do you build that into your hiring plan and acknowledge your blind spots? Yeah. So you went to you went to business school, graduated. How soon after that did Tango start to emerge as a as an idea? We did not graduate. So oh, okay, we, there you yeah, go. <laughs> we actually we left Harvard Business School uh, after a year. So wow. um, for us, I mean, it was it was there were a couple factors. That, you know, I think the pandemic actually played a huge role. We started yeah, exploring yeah. Tango January of 2020, so in the middle of our first year. Um, we were at HBS's startup bootcamp. Um, we got some encouraging feedback, and we we're like, you know what? Let's let's like actually like keep going with this. Let's see where this goes. Um, and in the course of that, you know, we were doing customer discovery calls and trying to just like learn more about you know this problem of knowledge transfer. And then you know when the world abruptly shifted workplaces went remote, distributed, people started doing layoffs. Our customer discovery calls went from like, oh yeah, that'd be interesting. Like, we'd love to see what you guys build to, if you can build this, we will use it. And so that level <laughs> of urgency yeah. was yeah. 
really powerful because, you know, here we are, we're at, we're on zoom university, uh, 90 people in a zoom room at HBS. You know, it's not what we're paying for. People are literally raising their hands to speak on a 90 person. Zoom. I was like, this, we, we can't do this anymore. So, you know, it was almost like, here's the thing that you came here to do. You've got amazing co-founders. Customers are asking for it. Go do it. Like school can wait. Like school will always be there. Um, and so, you know, that was the big motivator for us is, is really this shift. And I, and I don't think that, you know, what we're solving at Tango is necessarily isolated to the pandemic. I mean, people talk about like, oh, pandemic stocks or like pandemic companies. It's just that, you know, every company having to go remote and distributed exposed this problem in a major way, you know, where it was like, oh, you know, I'm remotely onboarding someone for the first time and we have nothing for them or we laid off 20% of our workforce and none of them documented what they did. So now we have to go figure it out from scratch. And so this is not stuff that's unique to a pandemic, right? It just exposed it. Uh, so that was a yeah. big motivator. Well, and with a shift in the way we work, right? You know, whether it's hybrid, remote, in person, like they're just obviously people are working differently now. I think that has stuck, right? And so just, yep. I think, punctuates the need for what you do. Talk to, talk to us about the culture that you're trying to build there. Like you have a, a unique opportunity to build something from scratch. Like what is that? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So I'll reference some of my Uber days here too. Um, <laughs> Uber wasn't exactly the blueprint for culture. <laughs> so and I think that that's well documented. Yeah. Uh, so I, I learned a lot of like, you know, what not to do there and, um, you know, so starting from that, what we tried to build was something where, you know, people, people felt like they could speak their mind. People felt like we were, we were winning together. It wasn't a bunch of like isolated victories or people competing, you know, the camaraderie is so important. Um, people felt like they were growing, so they were able to take on areas, things that you know, we're beyond maybe what they've done before. Um, and you know, we, we just, we got to know each other beyond just work. You know, I think one thing that was, um, challenging about Uber is it was hyper competitive. People were very scared to speak up, <laughs> uh, and you worked all the time. So you didn't really, there wasn't anything about your personal life. You know, we were there from 8am to 10pm and then you go home and maybe get some sleep and you wake up and think about ride sharing again. And so what was important to me was creating a culture where people had the space to have a personal life. Um, it's going to be hard. It's a startup, but we don't need all of your time. You know, we know that there's other priorities. We know that like for you to be your best at work means that you have other, other vehicles for, for your happiness. Um, and then, you know, the piece around being able to speak up and be able, being able to grow, um, you know, that was really important to me too, because I, you know, I was lucky in that some of those mentors gave that to me. Right. So a lot of, you know, a lot of what we've been trying to do <clears throat> at Tango also is to create an environment that can work remotely. So, you know, as you can imagine in a remote world, there's maybe less of a personal connection that people feel, um, 
it's harder to speak up. I mean, purely just given the channels that you have, it tends to be harder. Uh, and you know, that camaraderie that's so important, you know, that's, that's also challenging. Like how, you know, how you develop connections over zoom, um, it's a lot harder than if you're doing it in person, you have that sort of like water cooler or that, that lunch, um, you can spend with someone. So, you know, I think, I think we've been very deliberate about how we build it because we know that, Hey, you know what, this is 35 people distributed. We're all remote. We get together three times a year for our offsites and like, you know, in order to build the organization we want to build, like we have to overcome that challenge first. Um, but Uber did give me a good blueprint of what not to do. I was going to ask, Ken, you had said we, and you talk about co-founders. I'd love to hear more how that did. Did you find them? Did they find you? And then, and then how do you split leadership? Kind of that whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, quickly on that, you know, we had, we had actually been introduced through mutual friends, um, prior to, you know, starting at Harvard business school. So there was basically people that were like, Hey, you guys should get to know each other. You're both going to Harvard business school. And that happened kind of in three different directions. And so, uh, you know, we got together through that. And I think that was just like an easy entry point. I think it was the first day of school. Um, and we all gelled, you know, just as people, but then, you know, the more we got to know each other, the more we realized, oh, we're actually all here for similar reasons. Like we all want to do something entrepreneurial, whether it's start a company, join an early stage company. Um, and I think just based on our experiences, we fell kind of into like natural complementary roles. Brian was an engineer. He's, he's our CTO today. Um, you know, Dan had been in VC, uh, had a lot of experience working with companies sort of series B or later as they're adding on that sort of scaling revenue function. That's what he oversees today. And then, you know, for me, you know, I came in with this people management, high growth tech exposure. Um, and, you know, again, it sort of, uh, fell naturally into a, into a leadership role as a CEO. Yeah. Can you talked about letting people use their voice, which is a really powerful thing to do. And, but, but I think that also requires an organization to be committed to being transparent, right? Like I just, think, yeah. I, I don't know how you could use your voice and not be, be willing to build a culture of transparency. Like, how does that all work for you? And, um, how did you, how did you, I mean, I, I what, what, how, how did you arrive at really wanting to focus on letting people use their voice? Yeah. So, I mean, the transparency piece you know, you do have to be very conscious about how you, how you do that. Um, and you know, that means giving people an insight into the conversations that you might be having, but they're not there. So, you know, whenever we have a board meeting the next week, we set aside time for the team. We actually walk through the board deck with the team and what the discussion looked like every single quarter. And that's really when you, when you, you know, you show yeah, everything. Yeah, you let it all out there. Right. Okay. And so, um, and you know, I think, I think when you look at that in isolation, that exercise that we do, that's just one example. I think there's a lot of other examples that I could talk about, but when you think about that one and we say, Hey, here's our dirty laundry. Here's maybe our, I guess, I don't know, our clean laundry. Here's what's going well. Here's what's <laughs> not going well. 
that gives people the license to admit when something's not working. That gives people the license to actually say, Hey, why are we still doing that? You know, or why are we doing it in that way? Um, if it's not actually like driving results or it gives people the license to just raise their hand and be like something I'm working on. It doesn't feel like it's aligned with our priorities, especially given like the board conversation. How do I, how do I shift my time towards, towards something else? And so, oh, that, that, that is an example of how we approach transparency. It's like, how do we, how do we just have honest conversations? How do we come into meetings and say, Hey, Ken, CEO, co-founder here. I have a super half-baked idea, but here it is. What do people think? Um, you know, and, and just getting people comfortable with presenting things in that fashion or even just saying, you know, hey, look at that metric. Like, what's wrong with that metric? Yep. Why aren't we doing anything about it? Driving accountability. So, you know, that transparency is important because it allows people, I think, to move quickly. I mean, the, the scarcest resource you have as a startup is time. We talk about that a lot. Um, time is some sort of function of how many people you have, how many hours in a day you have, how many insights you can gather. And so the quicker that we're able to say something's not working or here's a huge opportunity that we need to go pursue, you know, that's better for us because we're always looking and saying, there's a clock that we're, that we're racing against, whether we like it or not. And so facilitating that conversation so that people don't stew on it and they don't wait on it. That's really, really important. If you go down the path with, if you see a big opportunity in front of you and you decide to pursue it, how do you balance that against the priorities that people are working on already? Like is, are, are you, do you sunset things? You're like, look, we're just going to walk away from that. We can't do that right now. We're going to focus here. How does that work? Yeah. I would say that one's a challenge. You know, we, we still haven't cracked yeah. the code on that because I think the DNA of a, of a startup is, you know, people are very cross-functional. You've got to do all the things you've got to kind of make it all work, even if it's not your arena of expertise, but, um, you know, we're getting better at saying, okay, here's an opportunity. If we're going to tackle this, it's going to come at a cost. Uh -huh. So of the things that we're working on, what feels like the the most significant deviation from our current priorities or what's the thing that feels like a distraction. Uh, so yeah, there's always, there's always a cost. And, and especially now too, as organizations are thinking about how do I do more with less? I like to think about that as not, how do I do all the same things that I was doing with less people? I like to think about it more as like, how do we reprioritize? and go deeper Man. and do more in the areas that we can really be successful. You know, I, you're, are you about three years into Tango now? 2020, I guess. Three so, years. You know, yeah, three years. Three years. How have you grown as a leader from then to now? In the beginning, as a co-founder, you're, you're like this high-powered individual contributor, right? You're, do, you're doing everything yep. that you need to do you're doing the legal filings, you're doing the financial models, you're doing the hiring plan, you're doing strategy, you're doing some of the product management, you're doing the data analytics. Um, so you, you're just, you're doing it all, right? And then I think um, one article that I reference, it's it's from uh, First Round. They have their, you know, their blog is, is awesome. Just a wealth of knowledge there. Um, 
but they have an article that's that talks about giving away your Legos and you know how to grow as a as a startup leader. And the idea is like you know you're going to have these piles of Legos, these things that you do, and then eventually it's going to be time for you to give that to somebody else. That somebody else is going to bring a new perspective, a new level of expertise. They're going to build that pile bigger, but then it's on you to figure out okay, well what is what is that new pile that I'm going to take on? What's that new pile that I'm going to build? Um, the article does a much better job that I just did of explaining it, but <laughs> the whole idea is, you know, your, the leadership change that you, you undergo is I can take on a lot of things to how do I enable others to achieve more than I could alone. Right. And so finding those opportunities to, to delegate, delegate sometimes is a dirty word, but it, it shouldn't be because it's, it's really about you know, figuring out who can make something better, uh, than you can mm-hmm. do. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's been a big change. How do I enable people? How do I, you know, unblock people from the things that they're working on? Um, mm-hmm. and you know, just generally like help accelerate a lot of our momentum. I'm curious, do you cross check that against the things that you do well? Meaning like if you're delegating, maybe you're delegating responsibilities that you can do, but you know, people can, others can do better so that I can yeah. focus on the stuff that I know is going to have real impact. Like that, that I'm wondering about that for you. Is that, is that, a, is that yeah. important? Yeah. Oh, it's super important. So there's actually a good framework that I like that, um, uh, Matt Mockery is sort of this famous tech executive coach. Um, he talks about it as kind of a two by two matrix. Um, okay. here are the things that I'm uniquely good at. Here are the things that I'm not uniquely good at. And then here are the things that I enjoy. Here are the things I don't enjoy. So that's your two by two. Yeah. You want to be operating yep. 80% of your time in the things that you enjoy and the things that you're uniquely good at. He calls that the zone of genius, which yeah, sure. hysterical, yeah. but memorable. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> the, zone of, the zone of genius is good branding. Um, but yeah, we go through that exercise as a founding group. I, I go through that exercise with my direct reports. Um, how do we, you know, how do we get people closer to that 80% benchmark of, right. of your time being spent in the zone of genius? Yeah. Smart. It's really smart. Hey, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got a, a busy day and so thank you for coming on the show, but we'd like to, we'd like to end with this last question and, you know, we've just gone through your, your career and just all the way back from when you were the captain of the football team. Right. So like, I, I feel like I, I've, I've, I've seen Ken's growth over a number of years here, but if you had a chance to walk a different path, if you had a chance to do it differently, would you, or would you take the same path that you've taken? Oh man, this is a tough one. I, th- I think that, I think probably the advice I would give my younger self is is really about that piece we talked about of of feeling like entrepreneurship is about accumulating a bunch of skills. I think that delayed me a little bit in wanting to, to pursue something entrepreneurial because I was always thinking about how, well, not quite ready. I think the path I followed was, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say I would change it at all, but, um, that would be the advice that I would give is like focus less on all the skills you feel like you need to accumulate and focus more on like, what are those areas? What are those problem areas 
that you're going to be energized by day in and day out. And it won't matter if you know something or you don't know something because you're just, you're willing to figure it out. Um, so that's how I reshape it, but I don't think I would change anything. I feel very lucky cool. to have been on the path that I've been on. That's great. Ken, that's great. Thank you for doing this. So the, the final, final question is where can people connect with you or learn more about you? Yeah. So I'm, you know, feel free to shoot me a note. I'm Ken at tango.us. Um, best way to learn about Tango is our website, tango.us. Um, and, you know, feel free to connect with me on, on Twitter, LinkedIn, um, either of those work. Thanks. Well, Ken Babcock, CEO of Tango. Thank you. Thanks again. I really do appreciate learning more about your story and uh, wish, you, wish you all nothing but the best of luck. It sounds, it just sounds like you're on an exciting journey. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host the Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.